Hello, and welcome to the Influence Watch podcast. Who are the eco-right, and what do they stand for? They will tell you that they want to bring a market-based and conservative-minded approach to conservation challenges, but my colleague Hayden Ludwig questions that narrative in a new report for Capital Research Center titled Rise of the Eco-Right. Looking into the funding, staffing, and policy positions undergirding the eco-right, Hayden exposes what he calls a web of overlapping boards and shared donors, all in service to a destructive and misleading agenda. Uh, hello, Hayden. Welcome back to the show. Howdy. It's good to be back. So uh, start at the beginning. What is the eco-right? Well, EcoRight is uh, our name for a group of about 15 groups, mostly based in Washington, D.C., that lobby for environmental policies related to global warming, but uniquely present themselves as moderate or broadly free market or even conservative, even though policy-wise they're much more in line with groups on the left. Uh, so what, what is that policy agenda that they, that they are pushing, again, ostensibly from the right? Well, I think it's important to start with a kind of fundamental worldview that these groups start with. They essentially agree with environmental groups on the left that there is a there's a, a threat of catastrophic man-made climate change. Not disputing that the climate changes, but that it's going to devastate the world in some apocalyptic fashion, and humans are basically the catalyst behind a lot of this. And that, there, and that there's nothing change. that can be do, and that there's nothing that can be done to manage it, live with it, adapt to it. Well, they think that you can do these uh, free market solutions that are very different from, say, the Green New Deal. But they basically start, yeah, at the same premise that we need to do something to save the planet. Otherwise, you know, the future of humanity is very bleak. But they go from there, though, and they look at what the left is proposed with things like the Green New Deal, and they say that's too extreme. What we want is something more market-friendly. And, and, so let's, and let's let – just for our listeners who may not need to be reminded of what is in the Green New Deal, that's basically a government takeover of the entire economy. It's the most extreme environmental proposal to date anywhere. Yeah. So obviously these groups that consider themselves free market don't want that kind of top-down approach. But I like to point out that – a lot of the things that they stand for really are market manipulations and top-down approaches as it is. My favorite example is a carbon tax. This is a tax on carbon dioxide producing um, manufacturing companies and industries. Well, everything produces carbon dioxide in the manufacturing process. We breathe out carbon dioxide. So if you think in terms of how an economy works, it's basically a master tax, a tax on everything. Even things like your food, which has to be delivered from the, from the farm all the way to the market by cargo trucks and trains and planes in some cases, and before, right? And that's before Representative Ocasio-Cortez starts going after the farting cows. <laughs> So really you could see how a tax like this, which is the most sweeping tax you could basically ever conceive of, really is a top-down government, quote-unquote, solution to climate change. I have a hard time seeing how we can call that conservative or free market. Mm -hmm. uh, so who are the most important groups Where, like, and, and what other than their policy agenda concerns you about them? Well, we should point out that these groups are different from the left in that they're not really interested in talking to Democratic voters or Democratic lawmakers. They want to convince conservative Republicans to get on their side. That's why I call them the eco-right. Um, I want to point out, too, that a lot of these organizations are funded by the left, which it ought to make conservative uh, voters and lawmakers suspicious of the their 
broader uh, agenda. Before we get, I guess then before we get into who these, who these group, what these groups are, who are those funders, and what would we know? What would we know them from? Yeah, the biggest one we 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 know of is the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. That's Hewlett is in Hewlett Packard, the the computer manufactory, right? And the Hewlett Foundation is a major funder of environmental causes on the left, and not on the right. I've also traced them to funding groups that are ostensibly conservative, not in the environmental sphere, um, but, but basically like Bill Crystal's uh, Defending Democracy Together receives a lot of Hewlett yeah, the, Foundation the, the, money. the fake Republicans for the whole Democratic agenda type groups. Yeah, and I want to point out that these groups are, are range from center left all the way to pretty radical left. But when you look at the left wing environmental groups that they fund, those are the kinds of groups that do support something as sweeping as the Green New Deal. So my point that I try to make to folks is, hey, Clearly, guys like the Hewlett Foundation, they don't see a problem in funding these eco-right groups or funding these Green New Deal groups. Shouldn't that make you suspicious when one of those organizations is presenting itself as conservative, even though it's it's one of its largest donors does not present itself as conservative? Yeah, and, and is in fact pretty down-the-line liberal. Uh, so are there, are there any other major notables other than Hewlett? Hewlett's the biggest one. We've also traced funding from Piero Midiar, the founder of eBay, through his uh, his charity called the Democracy Fund. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there's a few other groups. Like, I'll give you an example. There is there is a guy named Jay Faison who's a a tech entrepreneur. I might be retired now, but down in North Carolina. Now, Faison is a conservative Republican. He's, there's nothing liberal about him, and Faison funds um, his own organization called ClearPath which is a lobbying organization to talk to Republican lawmakers. So I don't want to paint these groups as all funded by the left, but when we look at most of them, we do trace funding from these large left-wing foundations. Mm-hmm. So you have these these large left-wing foundations, especially Hewlett, and then they go down and they fund this this eco-right network. Who Who are they? What are the names that we should be looking out for? I think the most infamous one, uh, people may not have heard about it outside of Washington circles, is the Niskanen Center, which I know, Mike, you're <laughs> very familiar with. I, I got to tell they you, had, too. They had some exciting news this week. Uh, that's exactly what I was going to bring up. I'm glad you did. Yeah, so the Niskanen Center, for folks who don't know, the Niskanen Center was a breakaway from the Cato Institute led by, I mean, a number of people, but the most famous one is the founder, Jerry Taylor. Jerry Taylor is the brother of James Taylor, who has always been a, um, I think he's actually the leader of the conservative Heartland Institute now. But uh, Jerry Taylor was a climate skeptic for the longest time at the Libertarian Cato Institute. Well, he led a breakaway of people who basically disagreed with Cato Institute's form of libertarianism and took a more left-leaning view of libertarianism and founded their own organization called the Niskanen Center, and he led it for years. I think he started in 2015 was the year. Well, Jerry Taylor actually just stepped down from leading the Niskanen Center after some really you know, troubling reports came out over the summer that uh, basically of domestic abuse against his wife. And you know, I don't want to get too much in the details because there's not much that's publicly known. But this guy, um, he 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 should be known as one of the individuals who has led the the Niskanen Center folks to go from a kind of slightly left leaning libertarianism that's pretty open to climate change. Yeah, sort of all- sort of a Republican in name. You know, the sort of northeastern Republican in name only left libertarianism to 
pretty down the line. They're pretty down the line progressive now. Well, and let's just say they they are heavily funded by George Soros's Open Society Foundations, and I find it absolutely no coincidence whatsoever that if you look on this Cannon Center's website, they support a vision of a quote-unquote open society, which is the same vision that George Soros has that he's given to the name of all his organizations. It's this. It's it's kind of a um, a we, lefty we libertarian. We had thing. we had our our now former colleague uh, Shane Devine on. On the pod, on the on the podcast uh, a few months ago um, to discuss uh, Soros's sort of open society vision and his intellectual memoir, I'll throw that episode in the show notes um, because that there's a there's a deep under there's an underlying ideology that isn't quite the same as normal you know Marxian socialism, uh, and it's important to draw that distinction. But I'll I'll throw that in the show notes. Yeah, I think it's it's got a lot of social engineering aspects to it, even though it's for largely free markets. There's the libertarian thing. I mean, the guy who who came up with this idea, Karl Popper, was I think he's from Austria, right? He was a socialist yeah, somewhere, somewhere in Central Europe. Yeah, it should make everybody skeptical immediately. But he was a socialist um, who turned into a libertarian and brought kind of a social engineering mindset. But regardless, this is the ideology that. Miss Cannon Center has developed. So they've been moving further and further to the left, even in the past few years that we've been studying their funding and, and, um, ideology in depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got, so we've got Miss Cannon, then there's Citizens Climate Lobby. Who are they? Citizens Climate Lobby is interesting. They're, they're probably the most openly left wing of any of these organizations. Um, CCL, I would call them a, liberal or center-left organization with a strong Republican outreach program. (laughs) They basically recruit folks to push for a carbon tax, and depending on who they're speaking to, it's either a wonderful thing for liberals or a wonderful thing for Republicans. It kind of varies. I actually think... It's the the tastes great, less less filling of public (laughs) policy issues. Yeah, my favorite example of all these eco-right groups, though, is the the Climate Leadership Council, the CLC. These guys are, are these guys are great. So the CLC was the brainchild of a a liberal think tank um, head named Ted Halstead. Um, he unfortunately died over the summer, but Halstead he positioned himself for years as this. Uh, transpartisan, kind of above the left-right divide kind of thinker for our day. In reality, the guy was pretty liberal and his last found, his last think tank called the New America Foundation is basically almost exclusively led by Obama administration alumni. So it tells you a little bit about who this idea tracks. But Halstead created this organization, the Climate Leadership Council, to push for a carbon tax. Well, his, his approach was pretty interesting. He went straight for big business. And if you look at the Climate Leadership's website, you'll find that it has uh, signatories from dozens of big oil and gas, solar, and wind companies, including like ExxonMobil and Royal Dutch Shell and the big names that are always protested by left-wing environmentalists. Well, what's amusing about all of this is that uh, very recently, um, in the last couple of weeks, a Greenpeace activist, again, from the far, far, far reaches of the environmental left, secretly recorded an ExxonMobil top lobbyist in Washington say that the only reason they support a carbon tax is because they don't really think it's ever going to pass Congress. 
So it's greenwashing. It's a cheap brownie points with the left. It's the, and, it's the, it's the sort of woke capital stuff that we discussed with, with Vivek Ramaswamy a couple weeks ago. It's exactly what it is. And it even got CLC booted these guys, ExxonMobil, from their from their founding list. And I, I love this in Stalinist fashion, scrub them from the list as get, if they were get never out, founder. Get out the eraser. Get out the eraser. <laughs> get out the airbrush. Not only are you no longer a member, you were never a founder at all. I mean, it's it's kind of hysterical. But, hey, that's that's what you get. I we, mean, we I've, have always been at war with East Asia, comrades. <laughs> I've always liked to point out that, you know, Look at the, what these companies stand to gain from this before we say, hey, see, even big oil cares about the environment. Well, maybe they do, but they also stand to gain a lot of money from any kind of top-down government proposal that makes things like natural gas um, more, more, uh, more. Um, what would you say, more common as a form of electricity production. And that's why all these companies have large holdings in natural gas production because they know that basically anything that encourages the use of wind turbines and solar panels means that you got to back up all of these unreliable and intermittent um, um, energy production sources my, my understanding with is natural that's gas. Is that that's what's going on in Europe right now? Is that they're being warned? They've obviously swung hard away from uh, nuclear and conventional combustion energy to wind. And now they're all going around warning the public that they're that they might have to turn the heat off. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, I mean, we saw this in um, in February, right, in Texas and Germany. Now, keep this in mind. Texas is an energy powerhouse. Germany was an energy powerhouse. It's one of the richest countries in the world in terms of coal. Well, they gave all that up, I'd say, on ideological grounds and surrendered themselves to basically harnessing a modern economy. Well, and they also, to- and they also, and they also, after the. The Japan earthquake in 2011 started shuttering all their nuclear plants. So even even the non-coal baseload baseload power was taken offline. Yeah, and what do you have in its place? You have you have energy sources which stop working when the sun goes down and the wind stops blowing. Well, unfortunately, that happens pretty often every day. In fact. And what's going on right now is Germany has basically succeeded in making electricity a luxury good for its citizens. It's inordinately expensive, which means they have to ration it out. Um, and there's a very limited amount of it when you have a, a especially high consumption rates, which is usually at night. People go home, they turn the lights on, they turn their heater on. So right now, Europe, especially Germany... Which, which is especially a problem if you're using solar energy because it's not generating... You're, you're stuck with whatever you were able to store over the day. And imagine what happens when you have a cold winter, a dark winter at that, where there's less energy production going on during the day, more energy consumption as people try to heat their homes during the day and during the night. The Germans right now are terrified that they're going to have a cold winter and people are going to freeze to death in their houses. Uh, and I don't blame them. And they've, they've largely done this to themselves. It's very sad to say. So – Getting back, you know, to the to the eco right groups themselves, you look down the list of like who's on them, and you see a lot of what should be pretty solid conservative Republican credentials. You see members of Republican cabinets, ex congressmen. You know, we're not talking wannabe socialist cadres here. How do they get? You know, what what's what's in it for them, and how are the Hewlett's of the world getting uh, getting these guys to go along with it? Well, it's an, it's an interesting question. I mean, speculating, of course. I, I don't know what's in their hearts. I don't know. Maybe they really believe that the, the world is going to come to an end, um, by all the cow farts that are going on. I, I have to, I have no idea about that, but I'll take them at their word. They really 
feel genuinely about this. But I'd also point out, you know, a lot of the talking points are cheap. It's cheap for Republicans to get left-wing activists off their backs by saying, yeah, of course I want to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. I just don't want to do something extreme like the Green New Deal. That's easy for people to say. In the case of the groups that are backing this, I think there's a lot of money in at it in stake for these groups. I think a lot of them they've they've gone into consulting work. Um, I like to point it to folks that one of the big pushes going on right now is with something called forced electrification. And this is like this isn't the electrification of your great grandparents in the 30s and 40s where they were bringing electricity to places that never had it before. This is basically taking all of the natural gas fired appliances in your house, like your oven, oh, and replacing this is, them. This is the this is the you don't get to use a gas stove anymore stuff. That's exactly right, and eventually that'll extend to you don't get to use a gasoline-powered car, etc., right? This is a mass push. Well, who gets to benefit from these? I, I like to point out these are less climate-related issues and more, say, union-related issues because inevitably they, they if, you're, if you're replacing everything in a house and totally overhauling an existing commercial or residential building, well, they're going to force union labor to do these things. So it's really less a handout to the Greens than it is a handout to big labor. And a lot of big construction firms and consultants stand to make a lot of money off these contracts. Mm. So, I mean, I guess is there anything else that that we've kind of, that that you'd like to to touch on before we before we let you go? Well, I think I think we need to know this. I mean, first of all, people there's a lot of confusion about. What is environmentalism? I don't know anybody who doesn't like clean air or water. Is that what we're talking about? Well, I like to tell folks, look, we need to be clear about our terms. You know, conservation, right, conserving your natural resources and stuff, that's just simple prudence. That's totally different from dealing with questions of global warming. They're just unrelated questions that are often grouped together so that people are confused about these things. We can take care of our existing resources without going overboard and believing that it's inevitable that we're, that our future generations are all going to, uh, witness horrible sea levels rising and live in this, you know, hothouse of a world if you don't start buying a Prius today. You know, we, these are not related issues and we have to be careful that we're not bamboozled into confusing these things and surrendering basically the future of cheap energy and prosperity that all of this abundant electricity has brought us. And I find it very hypocritical that the same liberals who are always complaining about, you know, uh, Western-style colonialism keeping people of color down in the third world, well, there's nothing more elitist and imperialist and colonialist than policies which say, well, we in America get to use all of this wonderful fossil fuel electricity, but you in India and China, well, you don't get to. You have to live with the consequences of our ideas. That should offend people everywhere, that these people have a right to self-determination about how they choose to create their electricity. And guys, no matter what we do in this country, no matter how much CO2 emissions we cut, it's inevitable global CO2 emissions are going to continue to rise. It's only a question of how much do we, do we <laughs> inflict well, self-harm. And to the, and to the extent <laughs> they, to the extent they don't rise, as we saw over the sort of past five, six years during the great American natural gas boom, you know, it wasn't windmills. It was, you know, switching from one fossil fuel to another, not for any de- declared reason by the government, but because of uh, market forces. That's right. Yeah. If if you want to celebrate the fastest means to lifting people out of poverty, it is cheap and abundant electricity. That there's no doubt. 
Well, uh, thank you for joining us this week, uh, Hayden. You can read his extensive report, Rise of the Eco-Right, at capitalresearch.org. That's our show. We encourage you to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.